0: Fantastic. Well, welcome. Welcome to Falls Church. My name is Pastor Dave, and one of my favorite things in life is telling stories. I love stories. I'm an overteller. <laughs> I had some friends over the other night, and they said, so how did you and Libby meet? About 45 minutes later, they were like, oh, so that's how you met. Lots of details are many times in the stories that I tell, and I've gotten better over, over the years of editing them down. But one of my favorite stories of the Bible is what I'm going to start with today. Because we are in 1 Samuel talking about the life of David. Our theme is Jesus, King of Kings. David is one of if not the greatest king of Israel, of ancient Israel, from the line of David, you know, Jesus was born. He is the king of kings in the line of David. But in chapter 20, where we're going to be for the most part of today, you have the story of David and Jonathan. Jonathan is Saul's son. Saul is the the first king of Israel, and Saul kind of screwed the whole thing up And as we we read about earlier before, um, Jonathan, who was supposed to be king, is now not going to be king. David has been anointed to be king. But before we get into those things, I'd like to highlight and talk about one of my favorite stories about Jonathan, because everybody... I think it's safe to say that everybody at some point has probably heard about David and Goliath. We spoke about that a few weeks ago. But that's a a cultural pop pop culture thing. You know, it's the, the David and Goliath story. Very, very famous. But Jonathan had an exploit almost, if not greater than that. Just not as famous. Now, here it is. In 1 Samuel 14. So the scene, setting the scene, we have two swords in all of Israel. Two swords in all of Israel. These swords are owned by Jonathan, the prince, and his dad Saul, the king. And they're only two swords because the Philistines, the enemies of Israel, had a monopoly on the blacksmiths because they said, Hey, if you guys can make if you guys have blacksmith opportunities, you're going to make swords, and that's not going to be good for us, so let's keep you down. And uh, so if you had any sort of thing, they had all the blacksmiths in the Philistine land. So the scene is also set because there's not much national pride at this point. The Israelites are scared. They're hiding in cisterns. They're hiding in caves. They're not out and about, you know, uh taking, taking back the land. Um, And so we find Jonathan and his, uh, the son of Saul with his young armor bearer. And in verse one of chapter 14, he says, come, let's go over to the Philistine outpost on the other side. But he did not tell his father. So that's a good idea. Let's go over to where the Philistines have a fortified military position. You and me, one sword between us, but let's not tell anybody. So Saul was sitting there uh, on the outskirts of Giba under a pomegranate tree in Migron. There were about 600 men with him. Uh, among them were Ahijah who was wearing an ephod, a Nicobod, the brother of blah, blah, blah. There were some people there, and they were sitting under a pomegranate tree. It reminds me of a bunch of hipsters, you know, drinking smoothies, eating pomegranates, because that's like a hip, healthy thing to eat eat pomegranates now. So you have a bunch of people just sitting there doing nothing. You have a whole bunch of the other Israelites that are hiding in caves. And Jonathan says, hey, let's go over to the Philistine outpost of Micmash." So on each side of the pass of the place that Jonathan intended to cross to reach the Philistine outpost, there was a cliff. One was called Boaz and the other was called uh, Sena. And one cliff stood to the north towards Michmash and the other to the south towards Geba. And Jonathan said to his young armor bearer, here it is, here it is, listen up. Jonathan said to his young armor bearer, come, let's go over to the outpost of those uncircumcised fellows. Perhaps the Lord will act on our behalf. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. Perhaps God will act on our behalf. This is one of the craziest, most, faith, most faith-filled passages in all the Bible. Because if you, there's a story of Gideon earlier in Israel's history, where he's just this little guy, he's literally hiding in a well area, and he's trying not to show, and and God appears to him and basically says, Gideon, mighty warrior. And he gives him sign after sign after sign that God is going to deliver the people of Israel through Gideon. We have no, any sort of, A record here that God has spoken to Jonathan saying, Hey, we're gonna do something great. We're gonna, I'm gonna deliver you today. We have Jonathan saying, Perhaps God will act on our behalf. Perhaps. And then his armor bearer says, This do all that you have in mind. His armor bearer said, Go ahead. I'm with you, heart and soul. Come then, Jonathan said. Okay, so I had the crazy idea. I got my buddy with me. Now let's put together a plan. Here's the plan. Come, then we will cross over towards the men and let them see us. If they say to us, wait here, and we will come down to you, we will stay there and we will not go up to them. But... If they say, come up to us, we will climb up because that will be our sign that the Lord has given them into our hands. Basically saying, if the most militarily ad- disadvantageous thing happens, if we're standing there and they see us, not we're not going to sneak up, if they see us from their outpost and say, hey, climb up these rocks, climb up the cliffs of insanity almost, maybe not quite, but climb up these rocks... To, then the Lord, that's our sign that the Lord has delivered them into our hands. Because God likes to get the credit. Because God deserves the credit. And sometimes if we think that our strategies are so good and our stuff is so polished, we can take the credit. But I think God likes to put us in absolutely impossible situations so that we are completely forced to recognize that he is the one that deserves and gets the credit. So both of them showed themselves to the Philistine outpost and the Philistine said, Look, the Hebrews are crawling out of their holes they were hiding in. The men of the outpost shouted up to Jonathan and his armor bearer and said, Come up, we'll teach you a lesson. And Jonathan hears this and says, Climb up after me. The Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. So Jonathan climbed up with his hands and his feet and his armor bearer right behind him. And the Philistines fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer followed and killed behind him. In that first attack, Jonathan and his armor bearer killed over 20 men in the the area of about a half acre. Then panic struck the whole army. The Philistines were sitting pretty good. They couldn't even see any of their enemy because they were all hiding. But panic struck the whole army, and it was a panic sent by God. And basically, all the Israelites came out of the caves, came out of their holes, and they chased the Philistines and won the battle that day. It was an incredible military Battle. It was an incredible defeat that was all due to God. Because one man was sitting there saying, we're doing nothing. And one man is sitting there remembering the stories that he's been told and told and told of, but we were slaves in in, in, in Egypt and Pharaoh's army was bearing down on us. But God parted the sea so that we could walk through. And then after we had walked through, the water came and swallowed up all of Pharaoh's armies. God did all that and nobody, not one of us, lifted a sword that day. Why are we sitting here drinking pomegranate smoothies when we could be doing something? Because nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many Or by few. Perhaps God will act on our behalf. I have experienced perhaps God moments. I'm living in a house right now. Because perhaps the Lord will provide for my wife and I to buy this land that we don't have the money for. Perhaps God will act on our behalf. But it's difficult to say, perhaps, God. But I think it's almost impossible to say, perhaps, God alone. For my specific miracle, I was not alone in building that house oh my word no 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 very blessed and david was not i'm sorry jonathan was not alone when he said perhaps the lord will act on our behalf because let's let's dream for a little bit let's let's let our holy spirit imagination go for a little bit here because he has this idea. He knows the character of God. He says, perhaps God will act on our behalf. But he had his armor bearer right there who said, do it. Let's go. And just perhaps Jonathan wasn't all in. His armor bearer comes and says, yes, let's do that. They go all in and together they see a miracle happen. Because God is a God of relationships, and he didn't create us for isolation. He created us for relationship and interconnectedness and dependence and and, and working together. What type of an armor bearer are you? And what is the perhaps God moment that you or us, what are we looking at? Let's stand. Jesus. I've, I've thought about this story. I've told this story so many times. I processed this story. Freshly, freshly speak this to me today. Freshly speak the words of perhaps the Lord will act on our behalf to Each one of us individually today, freshly speak the words. Perhaps God will act on our behalf to us as a body. We worship you. So, you ready to read a chapter? A chapter of the Bible. That's a good thing. Chapter a day? Does a chapter a day keep the devil away? No. Okay. <laughs> All right. So, chapter twenty of First Samuel. We have right. This is right after um, the struggle between David uh, and and Saul, the, the the king. Saul, the king, who did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and had been d uh, his kingdom was not taken away from him at that moment, but God made it very clear by anointing David to be the next king of Israel that Saul's reign was going to end at him. So David is fleeing from his life, but his best friend, the prince, Saul's son, named Jonathan, does not believe it. So here we come in verse 1. Then David fled from Naoth to Ramah and went to Jonathan and asked, What have I done? What is my crime? How have I wronged your father that he is trying to kill me? Jonathan does not believe this because Jonathan says, Never! You are not going to die. Look, my father doesn't do anything great or small without telling me why would he hide this from me. It isn't so. But this is where he has a moment of realization because David takes an oath, basically saying, hey, man, I swear to you that your father knows very well that I have found favor in your eyes. And he said to himself, Jonathan must not know about this or he will be grieved. Yet as surely as the Lord lives and as I live and as you live, there is only one step between me and death. And this is where I would suggest Jonathan comes into the position of armor bearer and says to David, whatever you want me to do, I'll do for you. Verse 5. So David said, look, tomorrow is the new moon feast, and I'm supposed to dine with the king. Let me go and hide in the field until evening of the day after tomorrow, and if your father misses me at all, uh, tell him, David earnestly asked my permission to hurry to Bethlehem, his hometown, because an annual sacrifice is being made there for the whole clan. And if he says, very well, then your servant is safe. But if he loses his temper, you can be sure that he is determined to do me harm. As for you, show kindness to your servant, for you have brought him into covenant between you and the Lord. And if I am guilty, kill me yourself. Why hand me over to your father? David saying, hey... Uh, Remember that we do have, we have a covenant together. We are friends. This is a very special bond that we have together. Don't kill me, but if I am guilty, kill me yourself. Jonathan says in verse 9, Never, if I had the least inkling that my father is determined to harm you, wouldn't I tell you? And David said, Who will tell me if your father answers you harshly? Okay, so if your father answers you harshly and, and you find out, how are we going to get the information to me? You can't text me. They're not going to invent that for a while. So, Jonathan, that was a joke. You can laugh, but I know I'm a dad, so my jokes are bad. So you, okay. Come, Jonathan said. Let's go out to the field. So they went out there together and then... In verse 12 then jonathan said to david i swear by the lord the god of israel that i will surely sound out my father by this time the day after tomorrow and if he is favorably disposed towards you i will w- will i not send you word and let you know but if my father intends to harm you may the lord deal with jonathan be it ever so severely if i do not let you know and send you away in peace may the lord be with you as he has been with my father. But show me unfailing kindness like the Lord's kindness as long as I live, so that I may not be killed. And do not cut off your kindness from my family, even when the Lord has cut off um, all of David's enemies from the earth. Politically, let's pause to think about this. You have the prince who should be king in the natural order of things, but he's not going to be king because he's best friends with the future king, the anointed king. And this prince is looking at the future king and saying, be good to me. Be good to my family. Because I know that in the natural order of things, you're going to kill me and you're going to kill all of my family. So they're they're making promises Together here, they're asking for favors from one another. So Jonathan made a covenant to the house of David, saying, May the Lord call David's enemies to account. And Jonathan had David reaffirm his oath of love to him because he loved him as himself. Verse 18, Then Jonathan said to David, Tomorrow is a new moon feast. You will be missed because your seat will be empty. The day after tomorrow, toward the evening, go to the place where you hid when all this trouble began, the stone Azel." I will shoot three arrows to the side of it as though I were shooting at a target. And then I will send a boy and say, go find the arrows. And if I say to him, look, the arrows are on the side of you. Bring them here. Then you, David, come, because as surely um, as the Lord lives, you are safe in no danger at all. But if I say to the boy, look, the arrows are beyond you, then you must go because the Lord has sent you away. And about the matter We have discussed. Remember, the Lord is a witness between the promises that we've made. So, David hid in the field when the new moon feast came, and the king sat down to eat. He sat in his customary place against the wall opposite Jonathan, and Abner sat next to Saul, but Jonathan or David's place was empty. Saul said nothing the first day, for he thought something must have happened. David is ceremonially unclean. Surely he That's why he's not here. But the next day, the second day of the month, David's place was empty again. And Saul said to Jonathan, why hasn't the son of Jesse come to eat with me either yesterday or today? What's going on? Where's Dave? Dave's not here. Um, Where is he? And Jonathan said, David earnestly asked me for permission to go to Bethlehem. He said, let me go because our family is observing a sacrifice in the town and my brother has ordered me to be there. If I have found favor in your eyes, let me go and see my brothers. And dad, that's why he's not here at your table. Saul's anger flared up against Jonathan. He said, i got to be careful here. You son of a perverse and rebellious woman. That's... A nice way of saying something else. Don't I know that you have sided with that son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of the mother who bore you? Here it is. As long as the son of Jesse lives on this earth, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. Now, send someone to bring him to me, for he must die. Why should he be put to death? asked Jonathan. Then Saul hurled his spear at him, and Jonathan knew that his father intended to kill David. Jonathan got up from the table in fierce anger, and on the second day of the feast, he did not eat food all around. He couldn't touch it because he was so grieved in his heart because of his father's shameful treatment of David. In the morning, Jonathan went out to the field for his meeting with David. He had a small boy with him, and he said to the boy, okay, run, find the arrows I shoot. And the boy ran. He shot an arrow beyond him. And when the boy came to the place where Jonathan's arrow had fallen, Jonathan called out to him, isn't the arrow beyond you? Then he shouted, hurry, go quickly, do not stop. And the boy picked up the arrow and returned it to his master. The boy knew nothing that he was involved in this plan and Jonathan gave the boy the weapons and he ran into town verse 41 after the boy had gone two friends David got up from the south side of the stone and bowed before Jonathan three times his face was on the ground they kissed each other and wept but David wept the most Jonathan said to David go in peace for we have a sworn friendship with each other in the name of the Lord. The Lord is witness between you and me and between your descendants and my descendants forever. Then David left and Jonathan went back to town. Two friends quite possibly see each other for the last time. No, we're not going to be able to hang anymore. Stuff has changed. So we have these two stories of Jonathan's life. He's a really tragic character. Not a character, he's a person, but this is a piece of true literature. He's a really tragic person because you can't, through all of it, see many places where he really did wrong. He's really reaping the sins of his father in many aspects. But you have his triumph. And then you have this moment of realization when he realizes that everything around him is crumbling. There's two things that I just want to briefly touch on. One, the first thing is about dreams. Dreams. What you dream about, your vision of the future, your vision of your preferred future. Because this is the crux of Saul's anger. He says, hey, as long as that son of Jesse lives, your kingdom, Jonathan, will never be established. You will never be king. Your kingdom will not be established. Your line, everything we deem important, you will not have those things. Dr. Tim Keller, I, I used a, an outline of his a couple months back. And it, in this outline, he said that the kingdom of this world revolves around four things. Power, success, comfort, and recognition. And that if you're in the kingdom of this world, you will live for these four things. And all of your life decisions will be made on the basis of getting and protecting and building upon these four things. You will also, if you are a part of the kingdom of this world, despise those who do not have these four things. But the kingdom of God is different. The kingdom of God flips everything upside down. And, and we looked at Jesus' life a few months back. I you know, don't have time to get into the whole thing, but basically Jesus wasn't looking for power. He wasn't looking for all these things. He flipped it upside down. And even though this story of Jonathan is hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus was sitting there, flipping the system on its, on its head, we see the roots and traces of the kingdom of God taking root in the people's lives, in the people of God. Because if you are a citizen of, God, of the kingdom of God, there may be times that you have some power, because Jonathan was a crown prince. Success? That beating the Philistine outpost at Micmash with him and his buddy, that's a pretty big success right there. Comfort? He's the prince. Recognition? Come on. Once again, he was the prince. But citizens of the kingdom of God do not live. Life's feverishly trying to hold on to these four things, but they're very comfortable in giving them away if God asks to do that. Right after I got done preaching that message two months ago, I was on Twitter and I saw a story about Dr. Keller. And it said he is resigning his church in July. I was like, oh, no, 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 no. This is one of my heroes, right? He's a, he's a, he's a teacher from afar. He's a friend of mine, you know, because I've been so blessed by his teaching. But he said, because he felt like the Lord was saying, hey, this 5,000 person mega church that, that that the Lord has built, and, and a lot of it is because of the dynamic work and leadership and teaching of Dr. Keller. We're, we're going to take this church and make it into three separate churches, and I'm just going to you know, let these other people uh, lead these places, and I'm going to teach more and, and, and be more behind the scene. And I was just so moved by a person that preaches something and does that same thing. Because in my circle, Keller has all those power, success, recognition, all those things. But he's giving it away. I love it. Jonathan's dad was operating from the paradigm of the kingdom of this world. But Jonathan knew that David was the anointed king of God and he vowed to help David survive, even at the detriment of the power, success, comfort, and recognition that Jonathan would probably never see. The second thing would be armor-bearers. Because... In both of these instances, we have the story of the armor-bearer. I mean, there are armor-bearers throughout the the Bible, but none spotlighted in a greater capacity than Jonathan and his armor-bearer in that great story. And now, this is not a position of armor-bearer that you're necessarily going to see on Fallshelpwanted.com, but this is a position that's crucial. It's an attitude That's crucial. Because one person who was uh, putting together a teaching on uh, spiritual armor bearers said this. Becoming, uh, armor bearers, becoming leaders by serving leaders. Okay. Okay, cool. See, Jonathan's conquest at Mi'kmash probably doesn't happen without his armor bearer saying, do it. I'm with you, heart and soul, whatever, you, whatever you're thinking. Let's go. Because an armor bearer can be one who's prayerfully supporting and cheering and working alongside the person they're carrying the armor for. Matthew 20, 25, and 26. This is where Jesus says, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and the high officials exercise authority over them, but not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. The New Living Translation says, but if you want to be different, whoever wants to be a leader among you must be your servant. Jonathan demonstrates that sometimes we have armor bearers and sometimes We are armor bearers. Jonathan saying to David, hey, whatever you need from me, whatever I'll do, whatever you ask for. The prince bearing the armor of the man who would take his throne. It's at this point of the message where honestly two years ago, the application would be, let's all align behind our leadership to move forward toward the vision that God has given. And th- that's, that's not necessarily a, a wrong thing to do, but that's not where God is leading us. Pastor Lance has invited us to go, hey... Let's together look. Where is God leading us to meet? And perhaps we'll have the opportunity to be the armor bearers with somebody who has a crazy idea, like, hey, let's, what about this? Oh, hey, let's, because perhaps God will do something crazy and cool somewhere. This is an opportunity for us to perhaps God together. This is an opportunity for us to bear uh I probably not say bear arms to be armor bearers <laughs> together but the bottom line is this guys this is all pointing to Jesus it all is because we we all follow the greatest servant of all who didn't just like take and carry around somebody's armor But he took up our sin. He took up the cross so that we may live. Because an armor bearer is there to help you win the battle. And Jesus took the tree. He took our sin. He took our pain. He took our punishment that we deserve so that we can and do have victory in Jesus you can find us online at Church, Or by searching Facebook at facebook.com slash fallschurch.cc